in on. Should be. that the system has changed it to a different view that's interesting wasn't like that before anyway good morning all that's the theater at Ephesus in Turkey and in Acts chapter 19 Luke describes a riot that took place there the silversmiths were all upset at losing business because Paul's preaching had been very effective and there were lots of people becoming Christians Anyway, the crowd dragged Paul's friends Gaius and Aristarchus into this theatre, hoping to have them punished or even killed. And three times in that story, Luke uses the word that's translated in our Bibles, assembly. Twice about this bunch of pagans who are angry at Christians, and once about a possible future legal meeting that the town clerk suggested. Everywhere else in the New Testament, that word is translated... Clicking's not working. What happens next? Let's try again. No? Ah, ah, ah. That word ecclesia was used about that riotous assembly of pagans but everywhere else in the New Testament, it's used for the church. And what it means is people called out of their homes for a meeting. If you look at the derivation, it's called out. And Christians like to think, ah, oh, we're called out of the world. And that's a nice thought. But the origin of the word is people are called out of their homes to be together. And I think that's an important idea when we're thinking about the church. In Stephen's address in Acts chapter 7, the same word uh, was used when he was talking about the Israelite congregation in the wilderness. All those Israelites together, that was an assembly, that was an ecclesia, according to uh, Luke's version of, of Stephen's address. You'll notice there that uh, I think it's significant that the emphasis... <laughs> we'll try again. The emphasis is on people coming together. Now, Jesus only used this word a couple of times, the most important being, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's a great quote because it assures us that the end result is guaranteed. The ultimate goal is that Jesus will have his church built. All the people he wants in it, uh, will come into it. But there's another thing that I see there, and that is that growth is to be expected in the church. And if it's not happening, we need to ask why not. It should be the norm for the church, and it certainly was in the book of Acts. The word church is used initially in Acts of the Jerusalem believers, but then later on Luke uses it about a church in a particular town, the church in Corinth, the church in Colossae or whatever. And finally, um, Paul urges Titus to appoint elders in every church. So 
as well as there being the church, the whole church, there is every church. So in many different towns and places, there is a church. Well, the question should probably be asked, oh, I've lost my pointer again. Get up. Ah. There it is. The question should probably be asked, why did Jesus' followers need to get together? Can't they faithfully follow him if they just read and pray at home? The original disciples were given two clear instructions about their role in the world. The first one we want to look at is in Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Witnesses talk about what they've experienced and that's what Jesus wanted the disciples to do. And in Matthew 28, we have what's called the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Surely witnessing about Jesus doesn't involve uh, Christians getting together. It doesn't seem to be necessary for witnessing and we'll see clearly that this is so. In Acts 8, 1, after the death of Stephen, all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So all the believers, that is, except these important key figures, the apostles were scattered. But then... It, Luke goes on in verse 4 to say, those who had been scattered preached the word everywhere they went. Now, this was not pulpit preaching at all. If you transliterated uh, what Luke says there, it would be they evangelized the word, meaning they announced the good news about Jesus. That's what they did everywhere they went. In spite of the fact that Stephen had just been killed for being a believer in Jesus, they told as many people as they could the good news about Jesus being their saviour. So witnessing is not something that the church needs to be involved in. But what about making disciples? That involves a lot more than just getting decisions. decisions disciples are not made at evangelistic campaign meetings. There's a huge difference between a person choosing to believe in Jesus and becoming a mature disciple of Jesus. And that's where the church comes in. It involves us getting together uh, to do things together, to grow together. Moving on to what the church did, we see in Acts 2.42, this is what the believers were devoting themselves to when they came together. The apostles' teaching to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Those four key things and it's probably significant that teaching is the very first thing mentioned there. Then Luke talks about the incredible sharing that went on. In the end of chapter 2 he talks about it and then he comes back to it in chapter 4 and says there was no needy person among them. Because they were so willing to share what they had, there was no one who was in a particular need. So these people were trying to fill the great, fulfill the great commission to make disciples and the great commandment to love one another. And the, the love one another commandment is what explains this sharing that was going on. 
You can't make disciples all love one another just with Facebook and email. They might come in handy for some things, but people need to come together to do these things effectively. And we have a specific command in Hebrews about coming together. We're urged not to give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. The day here is the end of the age when Jesus returns and it's closer than ever now. So more than ever, we mustn't stop meeting together as the church. Well, what does the New Testament teach about the church? The man called Paul Minier wrote a book about 40 or 50 years ago now about the images of the church in the New Testament. How many do you think he found? Who? <laughs> 96. He might, he might be using the word images slightly different from the rest of it, I'm not sure, but he, he's written a book with 96 images of the church in the New Testament. Well, we're only, we've only got time to look at a couple, you'll be pleased to know. The first one, God's temple from 1 Corinthians. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Now in Corinthians you have two passages about being the temple of the Holy Spirit. One of them concerns us as individuals, but this one concerns us as the church. There is a sense in which the church together is God's temple that doesn't uh, apply to us as individuals. So church gatherings, uh, temple, sorry, is a place where God, where a God lives and where the worshippers meet with their God. So in our case, the church meets with God in a special way and God is present in a special way when the church comes together. It's different from when we're just at home with our Bibles. A second important image in the New Testament is about the church being the bride of Christ these verses from Ephesians 5 uh, give us that thought. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Did you notice the number of words there to do with purity? holy, cleansing, washing, radiant, without stain, without wrinkle, without any blemish, holy and blameless. Do we get the point? Jesus wants his church to be absolutely pure. The third image, and probably the most useful one for understanding what the church is meant to be about, is that the church is the body of Christ. In Ephesians again, Paul says, God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. He is the head and we are directed by him if we're to carry out what he wants done on the earth now that he's back in heaven. Paul uses this image to teach that we each have a part to play in making this body work. 
And the other thing he points out is our dependence on each other as well as on Christ. We rely on other people to do their part if the church is going to function properly. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling those of us who believe in Jesus, but in addition to that, every believer has been given at least one spiritual gift. This is Corinthians 12, 7, 1 Corinthians. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And he goes on to talk about spiritual gifts. In Ephesians 4, Paul tells us that the gifts that uh, Jesus has given to the church are for equipping all of us for works of service. Look at this verse. Christ himself gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. The body of Christ will be built up by these works of service that are carried out by everyone in the church, uh, not by somebody standing up the front. So, looking at what we've seen so far, we've got two responsibilities. One is to witness about Jesus wherever we are, and we do that independently uh, in one sense of the church. But the second thing is we're to use the gift or gifts that God has given us to serve others in the church. Only one of those gifts refers to preaching the gospel. That's the gift of an evangelist. Every other gift uh, is really for serving one another in the church. And there are gifts described like administration and helps, all kinds of things, a lot besides the speaking gifts. Well, that's looking at the church from an earthly point of view, but Paul gives us a more heavenly view uh, of what the church is about as well. In Ephesians 3, verses 10 and 11, God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The way we function in the church is meant to be demonstrating uh, God's wisdom and bringing glory to God. The fact that uh, the church is currently divided into over 45,000 denominations uh, means that we're probably not doing a great job in that department. Next question, what did church meetings look like in the first century? There's a huge contrast in the Bible between the prescriptions for corporate worship in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, you were told what kind of animal or bird you had to bring and how it was to be cut up. The exact way uh, to be dressed for this was also spelled out. The priests had particular clothes and the design was, was very specific. When you get to the New Testament, uh, the fact is we don't know a lot about how the, the churches met, but there are some clues. There are only two specific procedures described for the New Testament church. One is baptism. And baptism is for everyone who decides to follow Christ. There is no evidence in the New Testament of anyone becoming a Christian and not following that up with being baptised. The second procedure that's prescribed for the New Testament church is communion for everyone who decided to follow Christ. And we had some verses read to us today describing... Uh, the detail of that and you'll, you, will have, you may have noticed in there 
but it says as often as you do it, there is no actual prescription about how often uh, or a lot about or any other details really. We've already seen that they met for teaching, fellowship, communion and prayer. But in Paul's letters to the church at Corinth where lots of things needed correction, we get a bit of an idea of what their services were like. Many people took part. Speaking in tongues was overdone there and it wasn't being helpful, so Paul had to correct that. It wasn't as orderly as Paul would like, but... uh, it says that each one comes with something to share. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 14, 26. Each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. He also talks about money being put aside each week as the Lord has prospered us. And then in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, it would appear that communion was being celebrated weekly. Uh, in that church and it's probably a habit right through the church in those days but uh, it's important that you don't restrict to that my father and a number of other soldiers if they could get together on a day off on a Wednesday during the war or something they would love to have communion together and Jesus prescription certainly allows for that there were often uh, fellowship meals sometimes called love feasts in the literature And they were pretty regular, it seems, in the early church. So that's that's about all we know about what was going on in their services. But we also know that each church had elders, plural, because Paul told Titus to establish plural elders in every church, and deacons as well. Deacons are servants in the church who have responsibility for some of the the more practical matters uh, that are very necessary to keep a church running. Each church was autonomous. They weren't subject to Peter or to another church anywhere. We're getting behind. Here we go. Well, what happened after that? The Bible story, Acts, finishes about AD 62. So what became of the church after that? Well, over the next 1,500 years... The church lost sight of many New Testament principles. For example, by the second century, most churches had one dominant elder, they called the bishop. By 500 AD, the church was submitting to the Pope, and church tradition had become just as important as Scripture. By 1000 AD, approximately, the church was teaching that the bread and wine became the real body and blood of Christ in the communion. And by 1500, One could buy someone else's release from an imaginary place called purgatory with cash. Remember, as we heard earlier, almost no one had a Bible. During the Middle Ages, even a lot of the priests were illiterate. And it's it's not surprising in a way that uh, the church got into a lot of strife. But the fact that church tradition had become as important as scripture was a huge problem. But on the 31st of October, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 points of contention to the church door. That was just how you got a a debate started in those days. So he wrote all this out, 95 points, and put it on the church door. The 
cameras in those days were only about one megapixel. That's why, <laughs> that's why that picture's like that. God raised up Luther, Calvin and Zwingli. Well, ah, it eventually worked. And these men were used by God to recover a whole lot of scriptural doctrines uh, and a number of them uh, have been grouped together with these Latin phrases, sola, sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus and soli Deo gloria. Sola scriptura means only the Bible is our authority, not the church. That meant that what the Pope said was not nearly as important as what the Bible said, and that was a good thing. The second one... Uh, it seems you've got to click and wait. Sola gratia. We can only be saved by grace, not by works. You see indulgences and things like that that trying to buy people's way out of purgatory and so on it's all about works and what Luther and his mates discovered was that we can only be saved by God's grace not by anything we can do similarly we can only be made right with God by faith sola fide faith nothing there's nothing we can do to make us right with God uh just while we're on that subject, I've been reading in Ezekiel this week and Ezekiel's hammering the people about their idolatry and how that's like immorality to God, to, to turn away from the true God. And then just at the end of chapter 16, God says, but when I make atonement for you, what? Aren't the people, the sinners, the ones who have to make atonement? But it's always God who makes atonement and... We see that in these things that were rediscovered in the Reformation. It's only by Christ's work that we can be saved. If God hadn't done something about making atonement for us, uh, we were lost eternally. And soli deo gloria, only for the glory of God, we can claim nothing. If we're a Christian, it, there's nothing that we've done that's brought that about. It's God in his grace. We should really thank God for the courage of these people. Some of them had cost them their lives uh, to come back, um, to step away from the Roman Catholic Church and more particularly from the doctrine. Luther never intended to leave the Catholic Church, but he was thrown out because uh, of these doctrines that he disagreed with them about. Well, that was uh, in the 16th century. I lost my little chap again. Come on, there it is. Why? There it is. The next point we want to think about is the fact that the Reformation didn't go far enough. Luther and Calvin continued to think that the Lord's Supper was a means of grace. There was something special about the bread and wine and not just a remembrance of Christ's death. Zwingli was a good man and he taught something very similar to what we believe about the communion. But Luther understood that every believer, every New Testament believer was a priest and he applied that to salvation really well. He said every one of us talks directly to God about our faith. We don't have to go through a Roman Catholic priest. That was, that was what he was teaching. He grasped that really well. But all those Protestant churches that developed still required a minister to administer baptism and the Lord's Supper. 
the ordinary believers, despite the fact that he discovered they were priests, um, couldn't lead in those sort of things. The churches were still linked to, uh, still attached to governments. England became Church of England, Scotland became Presbyterian, Germany became Lutheran, and the church and the state were still very much tied together. In the 17th century, Baptist, Congregational and Quakers broke away from this link with government and it cost a lot of those people their lives as well to do that. Then, in the 1830s, small groups of people start to meet for prayer, study and communion. A lot of them were Anglicans who were dissatisfied because there were so many people in their Anglican churches who weren't born again. And there were actually some Anglican and Baptist ministers as well as ordinary people who came together in these groups and they, they had fellowship. The men led by sharing what they had read in the scripture and things like that. And they started to form actual churches and some of them the ministers walked away from their own denominations and they said they were meeting simply as brethren in Christ as they shared from scripture. And they formed fellowships that were led by elders and they made the second coming of Jesus a live issue again. It had been pretty much uh, downplayed if not lost in a lot of churches until this time. And these people were nicknamed the brethren by other people and it stuck. They never accepted that name uh, as a denominational type name. But of course, in practice, we have been pretty much a, a denomination. And this church really comes out of that tradition from the 1830s. And we try to keep what is biblical out of that tradition. Emphasis on scripture. We seek to teach consistently and systematically from scripture and make that our authority. We have an emphasis on mission. For a lot of the 19th and most of the 20th century, brethren churches were more highly represented on the mission field per member in their churches than most other churches. We've probably lost that to some extent now. We continue to have a time of open worship leading into communion because we can see that that seems to be what was happening certainly at Corinth. Plurality of elders in leadership uh, is also important and this comes out of that tradition from what was rediscovered as it were in the 1830s. Now the early brethren didn't talk much about deacons but we would add the importance of deacons there because it is uh, very much a biblical concept. We could use some more at the moment, so be prepared to put your hand up. Now, where we are headed as a church, we've the elders have met on a number of occasions to look at where we're, where we're at and where we're going, and we came up with this idea that our mission is, as what the early churches was, the outworking of the great commission to make disciples and the great commandment to learn to love one another while we're, we're doing these things. That's what we feel is our mission in the world. 
And we then went on to look at what might that look like in five years' time. Now, this is a little while ago that we came up with this, but this is the vision for our church. The five-year vision of Faith Community Church is to see a church of 220 to 250 people with believers being committed disciples of the Lord Jesus, valuing their relationship with him above everything else and seeing the great commission and the great commandment as their life purpose. They will want to be together for worship, fellowship, teaching, communion and prayer and be focused on the global and local efforts to extend the rule of Jesus in this world. In five years' time, the church will be ready to plant a church with two elders and at least 30 people without leaving the mother church inadequately led or resourced. Well, that was formulated before this building was built and we now have an excellent facility which is more than adequate for the fulfilment of that vision. To some of you, that vision might seem not optimistic enough and some people might think it's too optimistic. Our faith may not be what it should be, but that's what we believed God could do with us. Conversion growth is the area of greatest weakness at present. We are not seeing many people coming to faith and being baptised and joining the church. There may be many reasons for that, but we need to think, look again at what the New Testament says and see if we are doing what was done then. I suspect that that picture we saw in Acts chapter 8, verse 4 doesn't really represent us. The ordinary believers announced the good news about Jesus wherever they went. We need to be more like that if we're going to see our vision fulfilled. I'm sure you will have noticed that this country desperately needs millions of people to become disciples of Jesus if we're not going to be destroyed by our own sinful choices. There are several activities currently going on here with a view to people becoming believers and then disciples of Jesus. Kids Club, Youth Ignite, Creative Gems and the CAP program are ministries aiming to share the gospel with people who have no knowledge of Jesus. KYB studies and home group Bible studies are helping Christians to grow in the faith. But we would welcome any suggestions from people as to other ways that we can share the gospel with our community. Please come and talk to us if you think you can help with another way of doing that. We think that we all need more than Sunday morning services to grow. We think it's best if everyone can be involved in a small group Bible study. They've been very helpful. Now, gentlemen, in the last few years, the ladies have outdone us in this. There's been a lot more ladies in Bible study groups than there have been men. See if there's something you can do about that. And if there's not a Bible study at a time that suits you, see if we can start one for you. Ephesians 4.16 assures us that under the right conditions, the church does grow in size and in love for one another. The condition is when each part is working properly. Paul tells us that we're all different parts of the body, placed here with a spiritual gift which is to be used to bless the whole church. In Acts 9.31, we have a slightly different view of church growth. 
the church enjoyed peace. This is after Paul's been converted, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. So there's two conditions there. Fearing the Lord, respect, reverence for God and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Knowing the Holy Spirit working amongst us, which he can only do if we are open to him and if we are seeking to deal with any known sin. Let's ask ourselves, do we want to be part of a church that is growing, where people are becoming followers of Jesus and growing to be more like him? And are we prepared to do our part? If not, what needs to change? Now, in the next few weeks, we'll be looking at some more issues about this church, leadership and other things, and we'll be looking for feedback. And next week, John will be handing out a survey and we'll be wanting you to comment on a range of issues. But this week, let's all think about what church is about and where we fit with the outworking of the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. What are we doing about making disciples and what are we doing about loving one another? I want to finish with a story. This picture was taken in 2010. It's a Qantas A380 with 459 people on it. The engine closest to the body of the plane there had a fire not long after they left Singapore airport and bits of the cowling fell down on an Indonesian village. But some of the bits that broke off that engine damaged uh, other systems, particularly two major cable lines were damaged. And in the next uh, time, in the time it took to get back to Singapore, there were a hundred alarms in the cockpit. When the uh, plane came to land, the slots on the front of the wings wouldn't work and they reduced the stall speed considerably. So they had to land a lot faster than usual. They couldn't use reverse thrust on the engines that were working. They had to rely on the um, wheel brakes. And they pulled up 100 metres short of the end of the runway. Then three tonnes of fuel spilled onto the tarmac under the plane. The fireys came out and doused all that. And the picture you see is the fireys trying to stop that left-hand outer engine. The pilots couldn't stop it. So many systems had broken down in, in the plane. But 459 people were safe, which was amazing. It all happened because one part in one engine stopped doing what it was supposed to do. And instead, it damaged some of the parts around it and they damaged some of the parts around them and eventually the whole thing was put at risk because one part failed. There are four million parts in that plane and it was nearly brought down by the failure of one. I want you to think about that in relation to us being the body and parts in particular. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for your plan of salvation and your plan to use the church. We're amazed uh, that you would want to rescue the church by using people. But you have chosen to do that and we're part of that. We thank you that we are part of the church, but we pray now that you would show us 
what do you expect of us as parts in the body of Christ? Help us to know what our gifts are, to find out what our gifts are and to use them to serve the church. And Lord, we do long for growth. This country is so needy. There is so much turning away from your ways and we want to stop that. We want to turn it around if possible. So we pray that you would show us how we can be involved in this. Bless us now as we depart to think about these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Morning tea is available and don't forget the stall for chaplaincy.